The whole idea of how other people see you is a tremendously powerful career driver. Well, often when I say that, people say, well, that's not really fair, is it? And I said, no, it's, you know, often it's not fair, but it's, it is reality. Hi there, and welcome to the second episode of the UN Job Finder Career Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Intolma. So for those of you who hasn't heard the first introduction episode, this show is about having a career within the international development sector. Following this show, you're going to hear interviews with people who've had or having a remarkable career within this field to hear their stories. In this episode, we're going to talk to, to an inspiring person who started out his career as a teacher in Australia and who's since then make a really astonishing career within different UN organizations. So, without further ado, we'll get right into the interview. Happy and honored to have Michael Embry as a guest here at You and Job Finder Career Podcast. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Magnus, and uh, I'm, I'm delighted to uh, to be on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Michael, I, I know that you've had an extraordinary career with different UN organizations, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, I know that in your most recent recent positions, you've been with UNDP, United Nations Development Program as their chief of recruitment, and then you were the director of human resources management for International Organization for Migration, IOM, in Geneva. And now you're the HR director for the United Nations Populations Fund, UNFPA, and, and you're back in New York. That, that was a very, very short description of, of recent years, but Michael, please tell us a bit more about who you are. Um, about who I am? Well, I'm, I'm actually... Uh um, a bit of a, um, a human resources tragic, if you like. I, I am one of the people in the UN system that uh, from an early time saw the real benefit that a strong HR team can make in, in, terms, in terms of organizational effectiveness. So uh, after a, an initial time doing some emergencies, I actually gravitated towards mainstream human resources and um, uh, it's a it's a decision that I I uh, have never regretted. I, I still very much believe that uh, having a strong HR uh, in any organisation makes for a strong organisation. And if you look at where we have problems in the multilateral sector, often it's because we have the wrong people in in place at time. So uh, it's uh, it's still a, a a profession, a discipline that I, I think is vitally important in the multilateral sector. Yeah, Michael, you know that I fully agree with that. It, it would be interesting to hear a bit more about, because I know that you've, if you could say a few words about those emergencies that you were involved in. What, was that with UNDPKO? Or? Um, it was a, it was, it's a, the answer to that is it's complicated. My, my uh, <laughs> first job um, uh, was a UNV um, funded by UNDRO, the United Nations Disaster Relief Organization, which was the precursor to OCHA. Um, and uh, I was administered by UNDP and uh, sent to Guinea to work with Liberian refugees, half-time for the World Food Program and half-time 
for UNHCR. So that was my, my first position. So it certainly gave me a good exposure to the different cultural, organizational cultural elements of those, uh, those different bodies. Mm. Um, and then from there, I went to former Yugoslavia with peacekeeping and uh, also to East Timor for three years with peacekeeping uh, in, the, in the missions in East Timor. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of the, the humanitarian slash post-conflict experience that I've had right. in my career. Right. Very interesting. So you, tell me, why, what was your entry point? I mean, you said that that was basically as a UNV in, into this sector, but um, why did you want to start working in this field? If you remember, if you go back to that time... Well, it's interesting because I'm one of these guys that never sort of set out to work for the UN. I just sort of fell into it. And uh, it all started one day when I was a school teacher in Australia. And um, the principal of the school said, what do you want to do next year? And I'd been teaching the same stuff for four years. And I said, look, I'd like to volunteer and go and teach in the mission schools. Now, it's interesting the message sent was not the message received because what I was thinking was, um, the Aboriginal mission schools in Northern Australia. Nice. So, so the next week I got a letter saying that we've got a teaching position for you in central Liberia. Um, oh. And uh, uh, so I, I, I freely admit I had to get an atlas from the library and look up where Liberia was. And I thought, well, why not? You know, in, in, for, in for a penny, in for a pound and uh, sold up everything and, and went as a volunteer teacher to Liberia. Um, the day I got there, the civil war started. Oh, um, and it was all uh, a bit sort of casual initially. Then, then the whole thing started to get some momentum. So within about six weeks, all of my students were refugees in neighbouring Guinea, and um, I didn't have anybody to teach. So I drove down to Monrovia. I walked into the UN office, so the UNDP office in Monrovia, and said, have you got a job? And there was a guy there from UNDRO, and he said, Sure. Can you can you start today? So that's how I joined the UN. I literally walked into the office and asked for a job. Now that is very rare. <laughs> that, is, that that happens anymore like that. And uh, I almost feel embarrassed when I talk at universities saying that because it's it's a lot harder these days uh, finding an entry point for for young professionals in particular. Mm. But that's how I got started. Wonderful. What an amazing story. <laughs> so you're talking about stories. I'm, I'm sure you have um, tons of stories that we could talk about for hours. But if, could you give an example of, of the kind of experience that he, um, you've gone through and, and maybe something that you're specifically proud of, of, of or that has been rewarding for you as a person? Yeah, that's that's hard to narrow that down. I mean, I've been certainly in the early days, I was exposed to the whole gamut of of the work of the UN from uh, sort of uh, wet feeding centres, uh, mass feeding, feeding Monrovia, mm. even um, uh, digging mass graves, which was part of the job in, in Liberia. Oh. Um, uh, but, you know, more recently on the, the learning and staff development side than the human resources side, etc. I think probably if, if I was to reflect back on the, the 25 years in and out of the UN, I think probably the time that I was I was uh, most proud of or was most exciting was was seeing East Timor go literally from ashes and, and then go uh, and become an independent country. Mm. And that was uh, that that evening the Independence Day celebrations in East Timor was just a fantastic uh, fantastic um, feeling and and um, the 
feeling of optimism and of success and the relevance of the UN uh, in uh, that evening was just amazing. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it was a, that's probably been one of the highlights, but there's been many highlights. And uh, I think, you know, I, I almost have daily highlights because you meet people daily that are inspiring, wonderful, uh, you know, catalytic people that are just, uh, that are, are making incredible difference in the world. And that's, that's, that's kind of fun. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Michael, for sharing that. When, when, you, when you joined, was there something, I mean, you had then been a teacher for a couple of years and, and suddenly found yourself in, in Liberia. What, was there something about working in this field that you, you didn't expect, but then sort of appeared to you? Well, just about all of it I didn't expect. Um, but, uh, I think um, yeah, I was quite young then, and when you're young, you, you sort of tend to feel that you're immortal. And um, uh, towards the end of my time, I'm in Liberia. I had a number of colleagues that were killed, uh, either you know through targeted assassinations or um, uh, you know disease or or accidents. And um, uh, it, there was a spate of about three months when twelve people I knew quite well uh, lost their lives. And that's something that you don't really uh, expect, and you're not really equipped with as a as a young professional to deal with. Um, most people, yeah. when they go to work, don't expect to lose their colleagues. Um, so I think that was the that was a, an interesting time, and certainly one that um, was a real learning experience for me as a young professional about the the importance of safety and security of staff, of not taking risks, of of putting staff safety first, etc. So I think um, that's that's the sort of thing that I hadn't anticipated when I started out in the multilateral sector. Mm. Yeah, no, I can only imagine how that must have affected you. Would you say that people who join now, maybe especially graduates and young professionals, are more prepared for those kind of experiences? Uh, not necessarily, I don't think. In, in some ways, they they may even be less prepared. Um, I mean, uh, Gen X and Gen Y have been a fairly protected mm. generation, and, and that's, a, that, that's a huge generalization, I know, but... Um, uh, the I don't think you can ever really prepare for those sorts of situations unless you've actually gone through it and um, and and uh, have experienced it. Um, so I, I don't think they're they're better prepared. What I do think though is that the system is is better prepared to mitigate against those mm. sorts of things. Um, I mean, when I was working in Liberia, we didn't have. R and R cycles. We didn't have uh, UNDSS. We didn't have armored vehicles and and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it was a. Um, there's been a lot of learning, particularly after the Canal Hotel bombing in 2003. Mm. Uh, uh, I think there's been a lot of positive developments in terms of staff safety and welfare since then. But of course, uh, we are also working in environments now where the UN is considered a, a legitimate target. So it's a, it's a more complicated environment to be working in, for sure, as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, I mean, obviously, it's gone really well for you. So would you say that you, you have a personal habit or trait that has been critical for your success that also made you sort of manage and, and deal with all these situations that you've been with or been through? Um. I think um, uh, a couple of things. One, one is you have to maintain a sense of humour, um, you know, even mm. even when the, the the chips are really down. To 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 
keep a perspective on things, I think is very much important. Um, to draw on the resources of the people around you, your know, friendships and networks, etc., is is, uh, is also important. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in what I call connectors in life, and that is maintaining your connections with family, with friends back home, uh, with the people around you when you're on mission or when you're in, working in another country. And, and they're the sort of things that, uh, that are important um, in terms of you know, coping, you know, coping strategies, etc. Excellent advice, Michael. The, what, what would you say? I mean, we have been mentioning a number of, of sort of tips already, but what are the most important lessons that you would like to share with our listeners who, who wants to pursue an, a career in, in international development? Um, I was given a piece of advice very early in my career by a very wise man called Douglas Manson, and he said, it's really, really important to maintain roots in your life um, and you know, still now I see this in, in the UN where people are reaching retirement and they're, they're very nervous about that because they don't really have anywhere to go mm. um, they, they, they've almost become stateless they don't want to go back to their home country etc I think uh, a piece of advice I often give young professionals is as soon as you're in the position to do it is to buy a piece of property or block of land or whatever somewhere where you feel comfortable to call home so that to, you know you've always got that in the back of your mind as a as a place to to go if, if it all goes pear-shaped um, and that's a very good piece of advice I mean that's something I did early mm-hmm. and um, uh, it's always been comforting to know even though I have haven't had to exercise it that you know, if need be i can just walk, uh, walk home and or, or fly home back to australia and i've got a um i've got a house there and it's set up and i'm i'm good to go um so maintaining those roots both physical and also in terms of the relationship roots as well mm. uh with with family and stuff uh, the advice i often give my staff is uh, particularly those working in stressful uh, um in, in stressful context is is never to miss a wedding or a funeral or a birth or you know always be home for those important events because you can't replace those mm. and and you know the work will always will always be there but but if you miss those events you you've missed them forever mm. so you know keeping keeping alive your your networks and family contacts and school friends etc that's just so important so that you've got that sense of connection mm. yeah Excellent advice, Michael. Maintain your roots and make sure that you sort of keep understanding that your own role, also for your family, of course. Yeah. Looking at UNFPA, where you currently work, in UNFPA, it would be nice to hear a few words about UNFPA. I mean, it's it's a truly global organization where you, with a mission to ensure that every pregnancy is wanted, every childbirth is safe, and every young person's potential is fulfilled. That's a that's a very strong mission. But could you tell us a bit more about what is it that you actually UNFPA do? You know, I'll start by saying uh, UNFPA is just just an incredible organization with with a. a phenomenal mandate um if you look at if you really break down the three elements of that mandate you know where every pregnancy is wanted so universal access to family planning where every childbirth is safe so reducing maternal mortality and where every young person's potential is fulfilled so really sort of leveraging that youth dividend Mm. 
um, uh, that that that's that's a staggeringly powerful mandate. And um, if you if you look at the heart of the development agenda, uh, we often like to say it's it's the ten year old girl. I mean, if you can keep her not married in school mm-hmm. and and not bearing children uh, until she's eighteen, then it opens up an an incredible world of possibility. And and if you get that part of the development agenda right, then you, you've probably cracked the whole development agenda in many ways. Mm. So um, I, I actually think you know, UNFPA should actually be a monstrous UN organization given its mandate. I mean, we work with certainly with um, you know, uh, mothers that are about to give birth, but also we work with adolescents, which is, uh, as we know, 1.8 billion of the world's population. Mm. But we also have a, a, a large... Uh, component of our mandate is to, is to work with aging, which is a, a, an interesting dynamic in terms of population. Mm. Um, so we, uh, our, our mandate certainly touches every country on Earth. It's mm. not just the developing world, and it. it uh, um, I, I think uh, UNFPA is is positioning itself at the moment to be a much more. Uh, much more important player in the whole development landscape, which I, which I think it, 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 it is probably long overdue. Mm. Wonderful, Michael. I mean, who would not like to come and work for UNFP if you put it this way? <laughs> But you, even so, why, why do you think that? What kind of, of, of people or staff with the uh, or sort of type of, of competence are you looking for? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, apart from the the functional skill set that we're after, which you know, demographers and reproductive health specialists, uh, gender, you know, etc. Um, in, in terms of the the qualities that we're after, we're we're looking. I mean, one of the one of the values that we value most highly is that of courage. Mm. And um, I mean, the reality is, you have to be pretty courageous. To, to tackle some of the issues that we, we work with in, in, some, in some countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, particularly when around things like um, female genital mutilation and cutting, um, gender-based violence, etc. I mean, these are, these are controversial and tough issues to deal with. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the value of courage is one that we look for. In terms of our leadership, the, the next generation of leadership that we're looking for, Uh, those with very strong advocacy skills, those that can do a sort of upstream policy advice, mm-hmm. those that uh, are um, have an understanding and are good at uh, resource mobilization in in the much broader context, not just you know leveraging traditional donors for more money, but but looking at uh, the whole idea of partnerships, not just resource mobilization. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, certainly. We're looking for people that are agile, that have a, a certain professional agility, mm. that can move from one country to another, understand the nuances of that country, and be um, agile enough to to change track if need be. If you look at, for example, the staff that we needed in Syria five years ago, it's very, very different context there now. Mm. Same with the Central African Republic. Same with Libya. I mean, th- these are all countries that have gone through dramatic transformations. Mm. So you need that that agility in how you approach situations. So that th- these are kind of the the underlying qualities that we're looking for. And, and one one final competency which which I personally feel is very very important, and that's the competency of humility. Mm. Um, uh, because 
uh, well, recognising that arrogance is one of the significant derailment uh, uh, aspects of senior leadership. But I think when you when you uh, have a degree of humility when you approach the development context, then uh, I, I think you're already starting on the right foot, mm-hmm. um, and and walking into a a new country office context where you, you're there to listen and to uh, and to learn rather than to, to dictate what to happen. So I think these are the qualities that we're kind of looking for at the moment in UNFPA. Mm. Really great, Michael. I'm, what I'm thinking is that I, I presume that many of our listeners are, are now maybe thinking, well, I, I have courage, I'm agile, and I fairly see myself as someone who has that humility. But how can I make sure that you understand that? What kind of, of more of experience maybe are, are you looking for that so that you can see that they have these qualities? Um, I mean, the, the, a lot of people ask me that question. They're, they're looking for the silver bullet and how to get a job in the UN, I think. Um, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a difficult question to answer. It, one, it is, indeed. Um, one of the, the things that we look for, for example, on a CV is volunteer experience. Mm. Uh, in, we in UNFPA introduced a leadership pool concept a few years ago, and we actually give a certain weighting in, uh, in terms of who to assess uh, if they've got volunteer experience, because we see that as um, having a value proposition. So I think volunteer mm. experience is, is very useful. Mm. Um, apart from sort of the formal application, which everybody has to go to, there's a number of, of complementary uh, aspects in terms of managing career that also people need to give some thought to as well. Uh, I've always been a strong advocate of, of people um, doing effective networking, Mm. Uh, as distinct from grotesque networking, which sometimes it can get a little bit grotesque. Yeah. Uh, but effective networking, I mean, we, 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 def- we define networking as building long-term professional reciprocal relationships where you're sharing knowledge, resources, and information. And, and uh, I think, you know, the key word there is reciprocal, actually. There's, networking is a two-way street, and, and certainly the people that are... Uh, that are interested in working in the in the multilateral sector or the banks or the UN or the EU, um, they've, they've, even though they're not already working, they've got a lot to offer, mm-hmm. and it's it's a matter of finding uh, where you can where you can be of, of benefit, even if you're not already working in those in those areas. Um, so, uh, you know, building those effective networks of people and, and maintaining those networks, nurturing them. Uh, very, very important. Um, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of study on networking. There's a one metric out there is that as many as much as ninety percent of jobs are secured through some form of formal or informal networking. Mm. So uh, it's a it's a necessary complementary component to a formal application. Mm. Uh, another area that I think is um, perhaps quite misunderstood, and this also includes people that are working already in the multilateral sector is that of, of reputation. Mm. Um, the, the whole idea of how other people see you is a tremendously powerful career driver. Mm. Um, and the, uh, often when I say that, people say, well, that's not really fair, is it? And I said, no, it's, you know, often it's not fair, but it's, it is reality. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, 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 mostly people I work with, they have a one-line expression that's, 
that's associated with him. It might be, yeah, he's fantastic. He's a great team player, very analytical. I'd love to have him working in my team, mm. something like that. Um, so most of us have uh, a one-liner associated with us or multiple one-liners, depending on, depending on who's, uh, who's looking at your reputation. And, and um, I think young people today have to be very cognizant of that. I, mean, I remember even with the use of things like social media, email, etc., um, we, we've all seen the nightmare stories, stories of somebody putting something on social media and then it coming back to haunt them afterwards. Um, uh, so that's something I particularly tell undergraduate students is be so careful of what you put on there because once you've put something out there, it's there. You know, um, Use of email is another one. Um, that's, that's another sort of aspect of reputation where you can destroy your career in, 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 in one dumb email you know mm. um so uh, these are the things that um i think people need to be cognizant of um and uh, and the final thing i'll talk about is persistence you know often the the un is I, i'll freely admit the un doesn't have the easiest mechanisms for, for applying for jobs you have to fill out these forms and they take a whole weekend to do it except and people go through that and they put a, an application in for a job and they don't hear anything back and they think, well, you know, the UN's not serious. Um, you, you have to be persistent and, and start building that momentum because you know, in a lot of positions where we're advertising, we're getting applicants in the thousands. Um, but also in a lot of positions that we're advertising, we're getting zero applicants. I've just um, advertised the position of country representative Yemen and I, I got nobody who applied because mm. nobody nobody wanted to go there yeah. um, so you know you, you, you have to sort of be persistent keep building that momentum and sometimes it takes months sometimes it takes years but eventually people get there if they if they're still motivated to join the UN mm. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that persistence is something that we'll hear over and over again in these interviews. But, Michael, the, this is really a, a value bomb, and I'm sure that people will listen to this interview repeated times, I mean, over and over again to hear your advice. Networking, making sure that thinking about your rumor, it's, it's really excellent. Magnus, if I could just add one more thing. Um, just about every part of the 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 UN system, multilateral system, uses competency-based interviewing for the final part of the selection process. Sometimes this is called situational interviewing, sometimes behavioral interviewing. Now, this is an art form. Um, and I, obviously, in my role, sit on a lot of interviews. And you can tell the people that have really prepared for an interview, and you can tell the ones that are just winging it. Um, my strong advice, particularly for the young professionals out there, is if the university offers courses in competency interviewing or behavioral interviewing, take the course. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not offered, go to a, an external provider, spend a couple of hundred dollars, take the course because it makes all the difference. And I often say to people, invest a couple of hundred dollars and become really good at that skill because that means you'll crack a job for maybe for, for life by, by doing a good interview. Mm. Um, or you know, getting an entry point into an organisation. Um, it's so important because a lot of people just let themselves down with really poor interviews. Mm. 
Yeah, again, um, really good advice. And, and actually, Michael, what you haven't maybe seen yet is that we have a blog post specifically about competency-based interviewing and where we also link to a YouTube video with yourself um, where you are presenting that concept. So, so for those who hasn't seen that, I, I encourage you to have a look at that blog post as, in, as well. And like Michael say, invest in yourself. Make sure, sure that you are prepared for those interviews. Michael, I, I also know that you have been very engaged in promoting mentoring for young professionals and that you also were in, involved in the establishment of the JPO mentoring program in, in UNDP. And um, in a way, we are with this podcast also... Uh, providing a similar a type of mentorship or guidance. Um, could you say a few words about m mentorship, what that means for you, and how do you see that as a driver for career and, and knowledge transfer? Look, I think, um, I think everybody in life benefits from some, some form of mentoring, uh, whether it be a you know, significant parent or... A, a trusted colleague or or friend, etc., and uh, I certainly think there's um, there's uh, significant scope for it in in international organisations. Well, we tend to think about two types of mentor um, for those that um, are already in an organisation that they're, they're familiar with the organisation. We we like to have career mentors, mm. um, and for those that are new to an organisation. Often we like to have a more of a focus on an organizational mentor, sort of understanding the unwritten rules in the organization and, and how to navigate the, com the political complexities, uh, which is often um, very difficult for somebody coming in cold to an organization. Mm. Now, if we look at what, uh, you know, what makes for a successful mentoring relationship, there's, there's a number of components. And if, if the people that are listening to this might want to give this some thought, uh, and it doesn't mean that you have to hit all of them, but certainly if you hit a lot of them. Firstly, um, it's very important, I think, to establish um, some um, growing of a mentor relationship. Uh, it's important the he wants to get out of the out of the relationship, but also what uh, what's in it for the mentor. And there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that mentors get more out of mentoring than than the mentees often. Often, um, so that that's important. Um, we also like to say when we're doing a formal mentoring process to have what's called a no fault termination clause. Mm. Uh, that is, if it's not working, then then we can we can stop the relationship without anybody being at fault. Um, uh, another success factor is to have the mentor that is. Uh, not at the next level in the organization, but two levels up, so, so two up, as we mm. say. Mm. And that's uh, because uh, if, if the person is at the next level, they can sometimes feel threatened by a younger person coming up. Mm. Um, regular communication, um, so sort of set up a regular time to, to talk. Best face-to-face, -face, but uh, uh, working... Globally, that's not always possible, but, but you know, with Skype and stuff, that can still happen. Um, uh, there's uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that having the same gender makes for a success as well, and also the same racial group. So mm -hmm. not nationality, but racial group, so that you understand 
uh, you have a better understanding of those sort of nine elements of culture that that affect um, that affect people. Um, so, you know, these are the things that um, uh, that sort of make for a successful mentoring relationship: having clarity of what you want out of it, mm. uh, defined period, uh, so it's not threatening, and um, uh, and understanding gender and, and race, so that you can. Um, uh, you, you set yourself up for success in that relationship, um, but it's it's a it's a, an incredibly powerful uh, tool mm. that that all of us should be looking at. Even the people in very very senior leadership, they benefit greatly from from mentoring as well. Um, so, uh, I think um, uh, if, if I was a young professional starting out again now, that's certainly something I would be looking looking for. If it's not being offered formally in an organisation, then to perhaps approach somebody informally to start something up exactly no again yeah if you, if you are not provided one make sure you, yeah, you can find one and and likewise i would repeat what you say and to encourage also those who are more senior or those who have experience to actually be take on someone and and mentor them because as you said it, it can be even more rewarding for them yeah yeah Great, Michael. I, I really want to respect your time. Um, so we, um, you provided us with tons of value here. Um, before we end, if any final tips that you would like to share with our listeners, even though you have given us already so many? Uh, not really. Just to say that if you, you know, if you do have that passion to work for the UN or for the, for the multilaterals, don't let that uh, don't let that passion die. Um, I've been in and out, uh, as I said, for 25 years, and I get up and go to work every morning. And, uh, and I mean this, I, st- I still feel utterly privileged to go to work every every day, particularly working for an organization like UNFPA. Um, and of course, you know, the UN has all sorts of problems, as as does every organization, but it's still a great organization. And, and personally, I feel it's probably more relevant now than it was in 1945. Um, and uh, it's still the only organization that can really tackle some of the big global issues that are facing us at the moment. Mm. So, um, so if you are interested, keep that passion alive. Keep putting the pieces in place to, to make sure that you, you know, you, uh, that you crack a job eventually. Don't be afraid to take a, a short-term job. Uh, most people start in the UN system through some sort of short-term position. And uh, hopefully I'll see some of the listeners in the corridors of the UN at some point soon. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been wonderful to talk to you and I hope we'll have you on the podcast soon again. Okay, thanks, Magnus. A delight to speak and good luck to the listeners. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Michael Emery at UNFPA. Again, thanks to Michael for joining Thank you also to all of you who's been sending us feedback on the first episode. Keep that feedback coming. I also want to remind you that if you find this podcast, as we hope you do, um, valuable, then please subscribe on iTunes and leave an honest review. At unjobfinder.org slash podcast, you will also find show notes and a transcript of the whole episode. So, until next time, have a great week.